Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have sung of welcoming your Holy Spirit into our midst tonight. And we pray that your Spirit would speak to us from this, your word, and you would help us to become more like you. Amen. Well, we, uh, we live, don't we, in turbulent times, both physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Now, I'm sure the same could have been said of many ages. Just talk to someone who lived through World War II, for instance, and you'll get an idea of what turbulence is all about. But uh, this year, uh, 2018, marks uh, the 50-year 50 uh, 50 anniversary of the civil rights leader Martin Luther King, who was assassinated in America. And if you remember that, it's been on the news recently, if you remember that, he gave a very famous speech, the speech that was called, I Have a Dream, I Have a Dream. And his dream focused on the fact that he he wanted one day that racism would end and that the United States would be a free nation for all its citizens. Well, we can see how much of that has come about or not, but uh, that was a fantastic dream that he had. Well, I have a dream. Dreams are good, aren't they? Dreams are good. And I have a dream that uh, each Sunday this church would be overflowing with people of all ages, all types, worshipping God, singing, being disciples of Jesus, and that this church would be going out into the local community, the local parish area of Norwich, spreading the good news that Jesus brings salvation to us. Well, you might well say, Nigel, that's that's a dream, that's a fantasy. Well, maybe, but I believe that God provides ways for these dreams to be fulfilled. And the book of Acts shows us the way that God enabled Jesus' work here on earth to continue after his ascension. So we're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 1, verses uh, 12 through to the end. Because what does this passage tell us? Well, it tells us about the followers of Jesus and how they responded to a time of crisis in their lives and how they followed Jesus' command to go and spread the good news of salvation. Now, as uh, Jonathan last week uh, told us in the first one of these series, he told us that uh, the number of followers of Jesus had risen and fallen through time. He told us that here we in the West perhaps are seeing a decline to some extent, whereas in other parts of the world there has been tremendous growth. But what's important for us, of course, is that we are true to Jesus and his instructions concerning telling others of the kingdom. Because what are we, where do we find ourselves here? Well, we find ourselves here that Jesus, 
after the resurrection, had taught his ragged band of disciples that they were to be the ones on whom God the Father would build the church. Four, since Jesus had risen from the dead, they were now not just just students, but now they were to be leaders of the church. They were to be witnesses of all that they had seen and heard. A tremendous triumph, you might say. But in the midst of this triumph, there was a tragedy as well. A tragedy that had fallen upon them all. Because one of their number, Judas Iscariot, had betrayed Christ, which had resulted in Jesus' arrest and eventual execution. And so what do we see here? Well, we see a bunch of people who were facing uh, tremendous difficulties, tremendous odds. One of their rank had committed treason, that we know that they were frightened and they hid behind locked doors. How could they build a church for what God had commissioned them to do? Well, Acts gives us the historical account of how they responded. But it also gives us the pattern that I believe that we as followers of Christ can follow as we look to build the work of Jesus here in Norwich today. In other words the dream I put to you. Over the years, we've seen in our congregation, haven't we, God at work, both in the church and outside, and we continue to seek that growth. But we need to know what are God's critical components when it comes to spreading his kingdom here in Norwich and moving forward. Well, I believe from this passage, we see four things that come from this. We see that uh, God desires churches to build on obedience, prayer, scripture, and the Holy Spirit. So let's look at each of those in turn tonight. So the first point is the church is to be built upon obedience. We read in the last verses of Luke's Gospel, as well as in verse 4 of Acts 1, that Jesus gave his followers an instruction to follow in establishing his church. After the final appearance and ascension of Jesus, what were they to do? They were to return to the dangerous city of Jerusalem to await the gift of the Holy Spirit that he was going to send to them. And this they did, we're told in Acts 1 verse 12. Of course, this begs the question, what else could they have done? Well, they could, of course, sought the safety of the places where they, which they called home, where they'd been fishermen, perhaps. They could have sought the safety of the countryside, dispersing out so that it would have been much harder for the officials to find them. They could have gone back to their old lifestyles pre-Jesus times, which was only three years about before. But no, we read that they were obedient to Jesus' command to go and wait in the dangerous city of Jerusalem. And so we read that they went to the house where, where the upper room was to be found. And that room appears to be the place where Jesus had had uh, 
had the last meal with them, the place where later uh, Peter would be prayed for that we read of in Acts 12. So they go to this room. Who was there? Who was there? Well, we see here in verse 13 that Peter lists who was, uh, sorry, Luke lists who was gathered there. Firstly, we've got the disciples, beginning with Peter, with one exception, of course. Judas wasn't present. Now, of these disciples mentioned here, only Peter, James, and John appear again in the New Testament. However, each of the disciples mentioned here was faithful in Christ's command to be a witness to the ends of the earth, even if they're not actually witnessed to in the Bible. We know that from some of the historical legends that have risen up from Christian history. So we've got these disciples here. And what we notice about them, of course, in this uh, history is that they were all apart from John martyred for their faith. There's, in fact, even a small group of Christians in India today to, who, who remind themselves that they, origin, they originated from the teaching of Thomas. And he was killed there. Matthew is said to have been martyred in Ethiopia. So whilst uh, God does not include them in the Acts of the Apostles, we mustn't forget that they did, in fact, give their lives as martyrs for the Saviour that they loved. So there we got it. The disciples, the followers were there. He then mentions the women who had supported Jesus' ministry and uh, the ones that had been at the tomb as well. And then in verse 14, we see he mentions Mary's mother, And this is the last time that Mary's mother is actually mentioned in the New Testament. And we don't know what happened to her at all. And then he mentions that we've got Jesus' brothers. They were present there. James, Joseph, Jude and Simon. Which is somewhat surprising, seeing that earlier on in Jesus' ministry, they had taken offence at his teaching. So why were they there? Well, it seems that uh, Jesus had appeared to James. Uh, We read of that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, that he had appeared to James, and so presumably the others had been brought round to being uh, believing that he was and is, in fact, the Son of God. So with all these people present, they were being obedient to what Christ had told them. In fact, if they hadn't have been obedient, they wouldn't have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do they do whilst they wait for God's kingdom to actually come, for God's gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, we read here, don't they, that they met together and they prayed. They met together and they prayed. Look at verse 14. They didn't go away off their own. They didn't do do their own thing. No, they met together and prayed. So we've got the obedience of them. And secondly, we've got that the church is going to be built upon prayer. They gathered to pray. The knee-jerk response to what they'd endured through this time of strife is prayer. In the light of the ascension of Christ, of Christ disappearing from them, prayer. In the light of the tragedy of treason, it's prayer. And look again at verse 14. 
Notice the unity of this prayer meeting. They were all together. And this, of course, followed the pattern of Jesus, who, before any decisions were made, spent time in prayer. We know, because we read in Luke 6, verse 12, that Jesus spent the evening in prayer before he chose the 12 disciples from from amongst all those others' followers. And again, they spent time in prayer. And if you look carefully at verse 14, it says they were constantly in prayer. One uh, translation states they stuck to praying. It was not just a quick prayer, shot up to ask God to bless them or to direct them or to use them. It was ongoing. They knew they were to wait on God in Jerusalem to pour out the promised Holy Spirit. So what better way to wait than to pray? And in fact, isn't this what we have experienced throughout Christian history? When we have seen when the church meets together, united and prays, that is when the God sends his Holy Spirit. And it's often the start of what was known as revivals within both the church and the community. To just give you one example, the uh, Fulton Street prayer meeting that sparked a revival in America in 1858 began with just six people praying. And within six months, there were 10,000 businessmen gathering daily for prayer in New York City. And within two years, one million converts were added to the American church. A.T. Pearson said this, there's never been a revival in any country that has not begun in united prayer. And, this is most important, no revival has ever continued beyond the duration of those prayer meetings. When the prayer meetings declined and wore off, so did the revival. United prayer is vital for God's work to be done here on earth and his kingdom founded and expanded. So that's a lesson, isn't it, for us tonight as we meet together. It's a lesson for us as we meet together next week at the AGM to hear what has happened over the last year and what is planned to happen within our church in the near near future. Let us realize that we need to meet together constantly, united in prayer on a regular basis, crying out that God would send his Holy Spirit, his power into this work so our church becomes full of people praising God. How often do we respond in prayer? When we've been successful, Is this the first thing we do? When we have been battered by problems and issues in life to tragedy, is it to pray? Well, here we see the right response. The disciples, the people, the brothers, the women, they were united together and they were united in worship as well. Because not only is it important they prayed, it leads them into God's word more closely as Peter preaches a sermon. So the third thing then that's necessary is that the church is built on Scripture. Look at verses 15 through to 20. 
Because Peter speaks concerning how the betrayal of Jesus has been foretold in the Scriptures. And this is a common thing, isn't it? When we have biblical prayer and worship, this leads Christians into God's Word, that God's Word will be expanded. Because Peter had not only been attending prayer meetings, he'd also been spending time in God's Word. Next week, we'll see chapter 2, Pentecost. And at Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon that is based upon God's word. It's loaded with scripture that he recites from memory. And here in verse 20, he quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 to give reasons why Judas had defected and why his position should be filled by someone else. Peter affirms that David did not write the Psalms by his own genius, but rather through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we know that during the 40-day ministry of Jesus to his apostles after the resurrection, that Jesus had taught them from all the Old Testament concerning himself. And during the 10 days after his ascension and and before Pentecost, The disciples were poring over scripture, seeking to understand in more depth the things that Jesus had been explaining. So what do we see in this sermon of Peter's? Well, we see that he doesn't address the triumphal ascension of Jesus at all, but rather the tragedy of treason which had occurred in their midst, Judah's betrayal. Because no doubt, this betrayal must have cast a shadow on that infant church and forcing them to respond to the failure in their leadership. But the focus here is on finding a replacement. So Peter sets forth the scriptures and the hope of what is to come. Look at the high viewpoint of of Scripture that Peter has. The events regarding Judas' betrayal were not an accident at all. They were a great tragedy, yes, but they had been prophesied. Yet having said that, Peter doesn't excuse Judas on the ground of what had happened to him that it had been prophesied. What he had done was not done because of the prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. So it raises the question, of course, in our minds, why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, it's not entirely clear. It might have been from greed. It might have come from, we have a clue in his name, because he's called Judas Iscariot. Now, the Iscariots were a band of violent nationalists who were prepared to undertake assassination and murder in their campaign to set the Palestinian state free. Bit of history there. We can sort of resonate with that, can't we? Perhaps Judas saw Jesus as the one who would lead Israel to independence and overturn the Roman authorities. For whatever the reason was, when Jesus didn't actually do what... uh, Uh, Judas wanted to, and he realised his plan was going wrong, he tragically committed suicide out of bitter remorse. 
And Peter here shows us that he understands that they need to replace him with another apostle. Not because he's just died, but because it's important there were 12 apostles. And so we see that the fourth point is that the church is built upon the apostles' teaching inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 21 through to verses 26. And so Peter's conclusion is this. Flowing from their worship and prayer based upon God's word states the necessity that another man must fill Judah's place. And the criteria for who that man is is important. The criteria is important. The apostle to fill Judas' place must be someone who has witnessed not just the resurrection of Jesus, but also can verify all that Jesus has said and done. And the apostle must make up the number to 12 apostles. Why was this? Why 12? Why was it so important? Well, we read in Luke 22 that at the Last Supper, Jesus states the relationship between the apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we've got an issue here of continuity that shows the smooth transition from the people of God in the Old Testament flowing out of the 12 tribes of Israel and now the ascension to the people of God, which we call the church, to be built upon the 12 apostles. And again, this connection between the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles is pointed out in Revelation 21. Thus the church is the Israel of God, Revelation says, and built upon the foundations of the prophets and the apostles. And so this filling this vacancy is tremendously important. But it's not a question of how efficient can we do it, but rather a requirement of God's purpose for the church, as revealed in Scripture. And so Peter applies God's word to their situation, and it's clear that though this is an apostolic appointment, it is only for that period of time. There is no succession from then till now. But of course, this doesn't mean that we don't have apostolic authority today. No, Christ's church today is built upon apostolic authority in the fulfilment of Christ's words and Christ's deeds. But it's not the office of the apostle which is passed down to subsequent generations. So we don't have apostles today. But it's the doctrine taught by the apostles as found in the inspired writings that serve the basis for the authority of the church. And this is vitally important to us, to pray and spend time on in God's word. And what, Paul, what Peter illustrates here, what it's, what it's repeated throughout Acts, that the Christian faith is to be based upon the apostolic teaching. And that is, we believe what flows from the first-hand witnesses of the apostles. And so we don't tolerate new interpretations onto the life and death and resurrection of Christ. But as Paul states in Ephesians 2, verse 20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. 
So, it was important that they appointed a new apostle. But the way they appointed him was unique to their situation. Look what happened in verse 23. Names were put forward from the congregation, from the group of people there. Verse 24, they go to prayer. Notice what's prayed for. In the light of Judas' secret sin, they acknowledge that they cannot make the decision on their own. They need God's help with this. And then in verse 26, they cast lots, a practice which might seem rather strange to us. So why do they cast lots? Well, it goes back to Proverbs 16, verse 33, um, where uh, it talks about casting lots, but the presumption that is made here, there is no such thing as chance at all, but that God's sovereignty extends to the smallest detail. So in making their final choice in this manner, they show their complete reliance upon the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And so in such an important situation, this decision, this process was seen as the Lord's work, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so there we have it, this relatively short passage, but very important four principles for us, I think, to follow as we seek to do God's work here in Norwich. So what can we learn from this passage for us today? Well, next Sunday, as we've already heard, we will have an election for the PCC at the AGM. No, we won't be casting lots. We're not adding to the apostleship, but we are asking that each one of us be in prayer for those nominated and those that are to be elected. But I think this passage goes beyond the election of just officers of the church because it also speaks to us how we view the means by which God builds his church through obedience, unity, prayer, his apostolic word, and the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are going to look at in our church meeting. God desires that Trinity Church be built upon obedience, prayer, scripture, and the Holy Spirit. Now the danger of us, for us all, of course, is that we live in an age that loves invention. We want it new. We want it improved. We want it bigger and better than the last generation did. And we can imagine that we can do it better than the previous generations before us. Well, Acts will be a challenge to us to rethink how we do church. It takes us back to our foundations so that what is built is based upon God's word and Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all men. We must, of course, be cautious about what we believe and constantly seek God's face in prayer and in scripture to see that what we believe is building upon God's word and not our own inventions. But for this... We need to trust, don't we, in our Lord to lead us forward through his gift of the Holy Spirit, which we can seek each day. It was wonderful, wasn't it, to be able to sing tonight, 
welcome the Holy Spirit into our midst. So let's pray that as we go into our AGM next week, that God will be moving us forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you think it started with 12 men, a bunch of women, and a few other people, and it spread out, and many millions of people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen.